all you have. We would be honored if you would join us. What's up, Far, Far Away family? How is everyone doing today? I hope all is well on your side of the galaxy. It's been hectic out here on the Outer Rim. Dang rebels are getting on my nerves. All they do is rebel and stir up problems. Why can't they do something more productive with their time? Like, uh, I don't know, join the Empire? Sith rules, hail Lord Vader, praise Palpatine. Okay, okay, sorry about that. Just one of my crazy spells. For those who haven't listened to one of the episodes of Lightsaber Radio, what the heck are you doing with your life? Don't you like to laugh? Because everyone on the show, including myself, is an idiot. And we say some of the craziest things ever. So don't miss out. Go and listen to it. Now, if you missed the last episode of this podcast, go back and listen to it. Because we announced that we have teamed up with Project Hope to help fight against COVID-19. We're donating all of our coffee money through our Kofi's page to Project Hope. We are giving up coffee to fight COVID. So make sure that you go over there to buy us a cup. That way we might have to suffer so other people don't. And we can really fight against COVID-19. The link is in the show notes below. Okay, let's get to Bane. In the last chapter, Xana got herself into a bit of a pickle. But Bane swooped in to save her adolescent butt. And when I say he swooped in, that's exactly what I meant. He is riding a beast that is described to be a dragon. They are called Drexel. And he rolled one through space to get to his apprentice. And when he shows up, he kills everything like the super Sith Lord he is. Then they start talking a little bit about the Jedi towards the end of the chapter. And Derevid finally realizes that Xana blew off his hand to save him from Bane. So that's where we left off last chapter. Let's see what's happening now. The Outer Rim world of Sereno was one of the wealthiest planets in the Republic. It was also a breeding ground for anti-Republic sentiment and radical separatist movements often secretly funded by the vast wealth of various Sereno noble families eager to free themselves from the political yoke of the Galactic Senate. Yet despite the dangerous, revolutionary undercurrents of its culture, or perhaps because of them, the great outdoor market of the planetary capital of Karania had become renowned as a hub of interstellar mercantilism. Shoppers of two dozen different species mingled freely beneath the tents and awnings of a thousand vendor stalls. From dawn to dusk, the cries of merchants hawking goods imported from every corner of the galaxy mingled with the shouted bids of haggling customers. Even the affluent and privileged braved the masses of the crowded plaza, willingly reducing themselves to a part of the unruly mob, pushing and shoving its way through the stalls in search of rare or valuable treasures that could be found nowhere else. Xana stood motionless in a secluded corner of the market square, trying to avoid notice. It wasn't easy for her to blend in with the crowd. Although she was of average height, she was a strikingly attractive young woman. It was necessary for her to take precautions when she didn't wish to draw the appreciative stares of males, or the envious glances of other females. In this particular instance, she had donned a loose black cloak that covered her from head to toe, obscuring her lean, athletic figure. The hood was pulled up to conceal her flowing mane of long, curly, blonde hair, and the shadows it cast across her features hid her bright, fierce eyes. She had also wrapped herself in a faint aura of insignificance, an illusion of the dark side that allowed her to hide in plain sight when she ventured out in public. It wouldn't shield her from the eyes of anyone looking for her, but as long as she didn't draw attention to herself, she would remain unnoticed and unremembered by the vast majority of weak-minded common folk. 
Even with these precautions, she would occasionally notice someone giving her a second glance. There was something about her. A hard edge to the way she moved, and even the way she stood, that set her apart from others. Yet it was far easier for her to remain inconspicuous than it was for her master. Over the past decade, the orbalisks that had attached themselves to Bane's torso had spread until they covered virtually his entire body. Only his feet, hands, and face remained free of the infestation, and only because he took extreme precautions. He wore special gloves and boots at all times, and when he slept, he donned a special helmet that resembled a cage meant to keep the parasites from growing over his face. Cloaks and thick layers of clothing couldn't fully hide what he'd become. Anyone who happened to catch a glimpse of the shiny carapaces beneath his garments would definitely remember. As a result, Bane rarely left their camp on Ambrium. He relied on his apprentice to be his eyes and ears to the outside world. He counted on her to act as an agent of his will, to coordinate and oversee the intricate plans he orchestrated from behind the scenes. That was why she was here now, waiting for a young Twi'lek she knew as Kaladin. It was unlikely that was his actual name, however. After all, he didn't know her real name, despite the fact that they were lovers. Cal was a political revolutionary, a self-styled freedom fighter, battling tyranny as a high-ranking member of a small extremist group determined to bring down the Republic. It had taken Xana several months to win his trust, but he had finally succumbed. Last night, as they had lain intertwined in the rough sheets of the small bed in Xana's rented apartment, the Twi'lek had promised to meet her at midday in the plaza to bring her to one of his organization's clandestine meetings. From the height of the sun in the afternoon sky, it was obvious Kaladin was late. Still, Xana continued to wait. She had learned the value of patience early on in her studies. Now, this chapter starts off with a big time jump. It's like 10 years later. Xana is now in the outer rim world of Serrano. Some real quick facts about Serrano. Serrano is a planet located on the outer rim, and it is allied with the Confederacy of Independent Systems, so it's a separatist planet. And one day, the leader of Serrano will be the one and only Count Duke, which was actually born on that planet, which is kind of crazy. Pray Sidious. A funny thought just popped in my head. Sidious the Hideous. Why don't we call him that? You know, after the whole shocking thing and Revenge of the Sith, okay, it sounded funnier in my head. It continues to talk about Xanon. The way she is described, she's pretty hot. And because of her looks, she draws a lot of attention. So it's kind of hard for her to go unnoticed. And when she is doing Sith stuff, she needs to go unnoticed. So she has to cover her entire body and head. You know, cover up the, the physique and the hair. Now, Xana has learned some force tricks to help with this. She can cloak herself in an aura of insignificance so that people around her won't even pay her no mind. I think that that's a pretty cool talent. And it's way easier for her to go unnoticed than it is for her master Darth Bane to go unnoticed. Because that gross description of Bane that they just gave tells us that the Orbalists have covered his entire body, except for his heads, hands, and feet. Okay, once again, what about his private area? How does he go to the bathroom? Does he just go in the Orbalist and they just eat it? I looked it up on Google and they didn't even know. And Google knows all. If anyone knows how he went to the bathroom, email me and let me know. It's driving me crazy. I need to know the answer. Okay, okay, woosah. Let's get back to the chapter. Now, because of Bane's appearance, he has to stay at home a lot. He can't just go into town looking the way he looks. He might get noticed as a Sith Lord, or he might just scare the heck out of everyone. 
is already a big guy. Then you add all these crustaceans on him. I think he was scared the hell out of the boogeyman. So he has to stay home. He has a special mask, glove, and boots that keeps them from growing over them parts of his body. And he had to wear them all the time. I bet you that caused his feet to stink so bad. This is probably the reason that Xana has to do all the running around. She's his eyes, ears, and doer of his will, because she can't stand the smell. He has to stay back at the camp on Ambria. Ambria is a small desert planet in the inner rim, which I thought was a bit odd. Why would you stay so close to the Jedi? And why would you let your apprentice go all the way to the outer rim all by herself? But Bane has a plan. And his plan is she would infiltrate a radicalist separatist group. And that's exactly what she did. Secrecy, cunning, patience. These are the weapons of the Sith, her master told her. They had left Onderon eight days before, abandoning the Starwake and acquiring another vessel from an Imordian merchant to bring them to Ambria. It was here on this remote world that Bane would begin her training. Act in haste, and you give the advantage to your enemy, Bane explained. Sometimes the proper and more difficult course is not to act. Even the greatest warrior often fails to wait until the moment is right before striking out. That is a mistake we cannot afford to make. She nodded, absorbing his words and committing them to memory. But words were only part of her training. Her master also gave her a task. A test that would prove she had truly learned a lesson. In one of the caves near the shore of Lake Nath, a few kilometers from their camp, lived a small family of Neeks, small reptilian herbivores native to Ambria. Only a meter in height, they stood upright on their hind legs, using their tails for balance and support. Their forelimbs were short and underdeveloped, good only for digging up shallow roots or carrying small nuts back to their nests. They had long necks and tiny heads with small toothless jaws that resembled beaks. The first day she and Darth Bane had arrived on the world, Xana had noticed them scurrying and darting about on the hot sands of the beach. As the first part of her training, Bane had tasked her with bringing one of the Neeks to him, alive and unfettered. The mission proved to be much harder than she first imagined. A common food source for the large carnivores that often prowled the shores of Lake Nath, Neeks were skittish by nature. They would flee at the sight of her, scampering off to disappear into the small cracks and crevices in the rocks surrounding the caves where they made their home. She couldn't simply set a trap for one. Bane's instructions required her to bring him one that came of its own free will. At first, Xana had tried luring them back to the camp by leaving a trail of food, but the creatures were mistrustful and spurned her offerings. Next, she tried dominating one's mind as she'd seen Bane do with the Drexel. But at Lake Nath, an ancient Jedi had once bound the dark side power of his enemies. That same power had emanated from the depths of the poisonous waters over the centuries, mutating the Neeks and making them immune to her clumsy efforts to control them with the Force. In the end, she realized she would have to tame one, training it to grow accustomed to her presence. So early each morning, she made her way down to the entrance of the cave, where she would sit cross-legged and practice the meditation exercises Bane was teaching her. She would stay motionless for hours, then calmly get up and return to the camp in the late afternoon, only to repeat the process the next morning. For the first three days, she was completely alone. But on the fourth day, the Neeks began to show themselves. 
cautious at first. They would dart out into view and scamper past her, well beyond her reach. By the middle of the second week, they began to grow used to her presence, and would sit and stare at her, only a few meters away. Occasionally, one would bark out a squeaking yip in her direction, or emit a low, tremulous chirping from the back of its throat. By the third week, one particularly curious youngling, not even as tall as Anna's knee, came close enough to her that she was able to reach out and touch it. After that, she started bringing food to her vigil, letting a small morsel sit in the open palm of an upturned hand at her side. The same bold little Neek would approach her with trepidation each time, balancing its fear against the alluring scent of the nuts wafting up from the young girl's hand. She would coo to it softly, and eventually it would gather its courage enough to rush in and snatch the morsel away before scurrying off to the safety of its cave, peeping with excitement. We love bringing you more Star Wars, and it is because of our partners that we can do this week after week. So we invite you to be one of those partners. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep this going. Your support will give us the ability to create future episodes, as well as provide you with the best sounding show on your playlist. And to express our appreciation, we will give you a shout out on our mid-series show that we do in the middle of every book. You will also be automatically entered in all future giveaways. All you have to do is go to the show notes and click that listener support link. Now let's get back to the show. Zana started positioning herself farther from the cave for her meditations. Each day, the Neek would come looking for her, ranging beyond the familiar borders of its territory in its quest to find her. Bit by bit, she drew it closer and closer to the camp, until one day, when she got up to leave, the Neek began to follow her. She made a point of taking soft, slow steps so as not to startle it, moving with small strides so she wouldn't lose her balance she gingerly shifted her weight from one foot to the other as she led the tiny creature all the way back to her master. It was near nightfall when she arrived, her pace turning the relatively short distance from the lake back to the camp into a four-hour journey. There were several tents in the camp. In addition to the one she and Bane slept in, there was one for storing food, another for clothing and equipment, and still others for weapons and fuel for their starship and land half-track. The tents were arranged in a three-quarter circle, facing inward toward the cooking fire. Bane was sitting by the blaze, waiting for her, stirring at a bubbling pot of bland-smelling stew. He had taken off his shirt in the summer night's heat. In the flickering glow of the flames, his apprentice could see that the obelisks were beginning to spread. The one on the back of his shoulder had traced its way across his bicep to the elbow of his heavily muscled arm, while the organism on his chest now extended halfway down his abdominal muscles and partway up his throat. Several narrow, dark bands of softer-looking flesh bisected each shell vertically, and the girl realized that in addition to growing, the creatures were about to split apart and multiply. Suppressing a shudder, Zana called out softly to him. I have completed my first lesson, Master. Bane glanced down at the small neat trailing to the camp behind her. Visible proof that his apprentice had fulfilled the task he had given her. Zana followed his gaze, turning toward the tiny creature. It looked up at her and chirped expectantly. She bent down to pet it, and Bane reached out with the force and snapped its long, thin neck. You've done well, he muttered, as she stared in horror at the tiny body twitching at her feet. Now, toss it in the stew. Zana took a moment to steal herself pushing away the grief that threatened to well up inside her. 
When Bane had first given her this task, she realized he must have known she would develop a fondness for the Lunique. If she had been wiser, she would have foreseen this, and viewed the creature simply as a tool. Something to be used, then tossed aside, rather than allowing herself to become emotionally attached. The pain she felt now over its death was a warning, a reminder that her only allegiance was to her master. She picked up the body and carried it over to the bubbling pot. Tossing it in, she looked Bane square in the eye. I see you decided to teach me two lessons today, Master. His only response was a grim smile. Reyna! She heard a voice shouting above the din of the market, using the false name she adopted for all her missions. After a moment, she was able to pick Kaladin out of the crowd, motioning her to come over and join him on the far side of the square. Twilic complexions came in a wide variety of colors, but Kel was of the extremely rare red-skinned Lethan race. Like most Lethans, he was undeniably gorgeous. He was tall and broad-shouldered, with a hard, flat stomach and perfectly proportioned limbs. He wore tight black pants and the loose-fitting tan tunic that hung open at the front to expose the lean muscles of his chest and abdomen. He had sensuous, perfectly symmetrical features, soft full lips and dark smoldering eyes that seemed to draw you in if you stared at them too long. His firm, shapely leku coiled around his neck and shoulders, winding their way suggestively down the front of his open tunic and exposed chest. Reynor! He cried out a second time, causing more than a few people to stop and look at him curiously. Zana cursed under her breath and moved quickly through the crowd to his side. Keep your voice down, she hissed when she got close. Everybody's staring at us. Let them stare, he said defiantly, though he did lower his voice to match hers. They're coming us. Their opinion means nothing to me. Kel was a child of position and privilege. In addition to being of Lethan stock, he came from a family that ranked among the nobility of the Twilic warrior caste. His entire life, he'd been told by all those around him how special he was. It was only natural he would grow up believing others to be beneath him. At times, Xana admired his haughty arrogance. It was a sign of power. He knew he was a superior specimen, and he wasn't afraid to show it. But it was also his great weakness. She had discovered early on that Kel was easily manipulated through flattery or challenges to his pride and ego, and she wasn't afraid to exploit that knowledge in the pursuit of her mission. You're late, she told him. I don't like to be kept waiting. I shouldn't even be doing this. He snapped back at her. I'm sorry, she said, pressing herself close and wrapping her arms around his neck and shoulders. I was beginning to think you were with another lover, she purred. If I ever find you with another female, I will cut her heart out. Kel pulled her even tighter against his body. You are more than enough for any male, he whispered into her ear, sending a shiver down Xana's spine. She kissed him on the lips, then broke the embrace. We don't have time for this, she protested. Your friends are waiting for us. Licking his lips as if he could still taste her, Kel nodded and grabbed her hand. Let's go, he said, pulling her through the crowd of shoppers.
Now this part of the chapter is a flashback to Xana's memory. A story of how Bane trained young Xana. Now it's long and drawn out. And I don't understand why they gave it an echo sound. Maybe it's to give it a dramatic effect or something like that. But it is what it is. Basically he has Xana befriend a meat. A small reptilian species on the planet. It was a test in patience and cunning. Once she got the creature to follow her back to the camp. Which took quite a long time. Like days, maybe even months. Bane killed it and taught her two lessons at once. Meek are very good in a stew and she did a good job. No, I'm just kidding. That's not, that's not the truth. He taught her how to use cunning and patience and to never let her feelings jeopardize her objective. He knew she would become attached to the meek and some of the things he had planned would put her in a position to get real close to people and he couldn't have her falling in love or anything like that. As we heard earlier in the chapter, she is sleeping with a young Twilik named Kaladin. Is it just me or does this just not seem right? It's just something wrong with that picture. Uh, I don't know. It, it's just kind of weird. Oh, wait a minute. These are Sith. Eldar's Grogu. This is what Sith do. This is when it goes back to Xana waiting on Kaladin. As she is waiting, she hears her fake name, Reyna, being called out. It is Kaladin calling out to her from across the square. Kaladin is a spoiled brat from the sound of it. The description of him, he is a good-looking Twilik man. He was from the Lethan Twi'leks. The Lethan had red skin. Only one in a million Twi'leks were born with red skin, which would definitely make him stand out in the crowd. He likes to be called Cal, and from the way he talks, you know he comes from money and he feels entitled. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As dusk fell over the camp on Ambria, Darth Bane reached out toward the tiny crystal pyramid he'd carefully positioned on the small pedestal in the center of the otherwise empty tent. Moving slowly, he brushed his fingers gently against its cold, dead surface then pulled his hand back when he saw it tremble. An instant later, his fingers started twitching spasmodically as tingling jolts of sharp pain laced their way from his elbow down to his wrist. Swearing a silent oath, he gritted his teeth and closed his eyes, trying to ride it out. Because of the orbalisks that encased his body, he was used to living in constant pain. It was always there, a dull throbbing just above the level of subconscious awareness. Normally, he could shut it out, bearing the torments of his infestation with no visible effects. However, if he wasn't careful, if he pushed himself too far, the physical demands could overwhelm him. The tremor had been a warning, the first sign that he was reaching the edges of his endurance. Three times before, he'd attempted to create his own Sith holocron, and each time, the project had ended in failure. He wasn't about to fail this time. He knew that one false move at this stage and all his work, literally years of preparation, would be undone. Yet he also knew that he had no choice but to find a way to deal with the pain and continue his work. He had made his first attempt five years before. Using Frida Nat's holocron as a blueprint, he had recreated the intricate matrix of lattices and vertices that were the key to storing nearly infinite amounts of knowledge in a data system small enough to fit in the palm of a hand. 
It had taken months to gather and fashion the rare crystals into the filaments and fibers of the interlaced network, followed by weeks of delicate and painstaking adjustments. The Matrix had to fall within highly exacting specifications, and Bayonet spent hundreds of hours making thousands of precise subatomic alterations through the power of the Force to ensure that each crystalline strand was properly in place. Once the crystal matrix inside the holocron was ready, he had carefully transcribed the ancient symbols of Sith power onto the pyramid's surface. The markings were part of a powerful ritual that was critical to maintaining the stability of the matrix after it was infused with the energies of the dark side. Unfamiliar with the exact purpose or meaning of the arcane glyphs, Darth Bane had once again used Nad's holocron as his guide, studying the markings etched on the surface, then copying them exactly on his own creation. But when he tried to activate the holocron by channeling his power through it, the Matrix imploded, collapsing in on itself and reducing the artifact to a pile of glimmering dust in a crackling white flash. He tried again several months later, only to be met with the exact same result. Forced to admit that the secret of crafting holocrons was still beyond him, Bane had begun a campaign to discover everything he could about the powerful talismans. With Xana's aid, he accumulated a vast wealth of knowledge on the subject. He devoured every data card, historical account, and personal memoir he could find that theorized on the steps needed to create one of the fiendishly complex pyramids. He came across thousands of veiled references to, and hundreds of theoretical speculations on, the art of crafting a holocron. However, he was unable to find a single source that explicitly set out the spells and rituals required, and their secrets still eluded him. Bane refused to give up. He continued his research, seeking out rare tomes, hidden documents, and forbidden works of lore. It took three more years until he learned the purpose and meaning behind the glyphs. And in doing so, he found an answer to why his first efforts had failed. He discovered that each holocron was emblazoned with symbols that were uniquely tied to the Sith Lord responsible for the artifact's creation. The miniature pyramids were far more than a simple collection of raw data. Learning was imparted through the wisdom of a gatekeeper an advanced, simulated personality that mimicked the creator's own identity. The right combination of symbols, applied in conjunction with specific sorceries and spells of the ancient Sith, would allow Bane to capture his appearance, knowledge, and cognitive processes. Within the structure of the holocron, they would be transformed into a three-dimensional hologram to guide and direct anyone who used the artifact. The cognitive network that fueled the Gatekeeper also stabilized the interwoven lattices and vertices of the Matrix, keeping it from collapsing as it had done on Bane's previous attempts. Armed with this new understanding, Bane had made a third attempt to create his own holocron two years ago. He had proceeded carefully. The rituals of invocation required to divine and inscribe the proper symbols onto the pyramid surface were mentally and physically exhausting. Ever wary of making a mistake, he had drawn the process out over two long weeks. Ironically, his caution proved to be his undoing. As he began manipulating the inner structures of the Crystal Matrix during the final phase of the project, he sensed that the power of the symbols had faded, 
the cognitive network of the gatekeeper had degraded to the point that it lacked the ability to support and stabilize the matrix. In desperation, he had sought some way to restore it, only to realize his efforts were futile. Enraged at yet another failure, he had crushed the useless pyramid to dust with his bare hands. Before beginning his fourth and most recent attempt, Bane had vowed that he would not fail again. Time was the real key. He had to finish aligning the Matrix and infuse it with his dark side energies within a few days, before the cognitive functions of the Gatekeeper began to degrade. Now, after months of gathering the rare materials, weeks of meditations to focus his power, and three straight days and nights of intense focus and concentration, he was finally nearing the end. Only a few dozen minor adjustments still needed to be made. But Bane was keenly aware that time was running out. Three days of constantly drawing upon the Force without food or respite had left him exhausted in body, mind, and spirit. He was particularly vulnerable to the Orbalisks in this state. Normally they fed off the dark side energies that naturally flowed through him. But the creation of the Holocron demanded that he channel all his power directly into his work. The parasites were slowly starving, and in response, they were flooding his bloodstream with chemicals and hormones intended to drive him into a mindless fury so they could gorge themselves on the dark side as he unleashed his rage. The spasming muscles of his hand and fingers were a direct result of their efforts, and there was nothing Bane could do but wait for the tremor to pass. He had only a few hours left to complete his work, Yet he couldn't risk making a mistake and damaging the delicately interwoven crystal fibers of the Holocron's internal structure. Slowly, he was able to reassert control over his convulsing digits, ruining each precious second that slipped away as he did so. When his hand at last became still, he took a slow, deep breath to refocus his mind, then reached out with the Force to touch the Matrix once more. A ribbon of electric blades raveled itself around the muscles and nerves of his spine, causing him to arch backward as he screamed in agony. The pain momentarily broke his concentration, and an uncontrollable surge of dark side energy shot through him and into the holocron. An instant later, it exploded, spraying Bane with a shower of crystal fragments and dust. For several seconds, he simply stared at the empty pedestal feeling the pulsing hunger of the Orbalisks and his own gathering rage. A red veil fell across his vision, and Darth Bane surrendered himself to the Fury. Okay, so Bane is trying to create a holocron, and he's using Freedon Nad's holocron as a blueprint. He has tried this several times over the last 10 years, and he fails every time. It is probably the tremors that he is having because of the orbalist straining his body. Plus, how could you really focus with this constant pain caused by these crustaceans and the years of constipation he is suffering from? He ain't went to the bathroom in like 10 years. I think that it might be messing with him. But he keeps on trying. With the help of Xander, he finds every writing he can find, anything that might help him create his own holocron. I gotta give it to him. He is definitely dedicated. But he keeps on failing and he can't figure out why. Then he learns that the markings on the outside of the holocron are directly linked to the maker of that holocron. And he had a limited time period to build and imprint the knowledge into the holocron. 
He was using all of his dark side powers and the Orbalists didn't like this because they feed off the dark side. So they were starving. This caused them to flood his body with hormones to make him lose his temper and lash out, drawn upon the dark side. But he held it together long enough to finish all the work. But as soon as he started to try to transfer the knowledge, they did something that made Bane fry the holocron. At this point, he gave in to his hate. Hell Lord Vader. And that's where the chapter comes to an end. It really didn't have any action in this chapter, but it still has some excitement. So I'm not going to say that it was a bad chapter, but I do think that they could have done better. We did learn a lot, but I think there was a lot more that they could have told us in this chapter. How Bane and the Orbalists are doing, we learned that, and how Xana had grown up over the last 10 years. I would have thought that there would have been a little bit more details about it, though. They just kind of gave us little bits and pieces, but it was okay. Now on to the quote from this week, and it comes to us from me. So I really want you to pay attention because this is kind of an important one. Here we go. The tallest building in the city was once a vacant lot. That was pretty good, wasn't it? Let me explain what it means. I often talk about getting started, executing a plan, and that goes for everybody. And it's exactly the same thing for you or an architect. They draw up plans, then they have to find investors, search for a place to build it, find a construction company that can build it, get thousands of permits, get all of the money, get everything together before they ever even break ground. This might take years. A lot of times we have an idea and we expect it to happen instantly. Have the idea, next day it's already done. But it doesn't happen like that. There is a lot of planning that needs to be done. Finding out stuff that we need to know, finding the right investors or just the right information. It all depends on what you are trying to do. Take me for example, I wanted to do a YouTube channel. This was about 10 years ago. So I watched every video on how to start a YouTube. From those videos, I found out that audio was more important than the video. So I watched every video on how to get the best audio. Then I got started. In a few years of doing it, I found out I didn't really like YouTube. YouTube canceled my channel over something stupid. So I thought that I would start a podcast. I took the information and what I had learned from YouTube and used it on the podcast. But I still needed to advertise the podcast. YouTube does a lot of it for you. These podcast places, they don't advertise for you. So I didn't know how to do any advertising. So I watched a bunch of advertising videos on YouTube. They all said the same thing. You have to use social media. I didn't really know anything about social media. I mean, I know about Facebook, but other than that, I didn't know. So then I had to watch videos about social media. Now I've like watched 10,000 hours of YouTube videos. This is over the last 10 years. That's not including reading books, blogs, and all that stuff. And I was working two jobs most of the time. What I'm trying to say is it takes time. The ones that do not fail are the ones that do not give up. An idea doesn't have to be done right then. You just need to take the time to be working on it all the time. It may be slow at first, but it will become a skyscraper when everything is in place. The Death Star wasn't built in a day. I guarantee you that Sidious came up with the idea long before there was an empire. Praise Sidious. Okay, that's enough of my rambling. Join us next week for Chapter 11. Hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Sway. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can find us and subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shit and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel, sound designed by Theodore Thompson, researched by Tammy Turner. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.